Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Faculty of Theology in Melbourne, and in 1987 he was ordained a priest, and after studying in Rome, uh, he moved to the United States in 1993. I'm sorry, Abbot Nicholas, I'm totally whitewashing over like huge parts of your life. You can maybe tell us, <laughs> you can tell us a little more about it. Um, and in 2000, he was elected as Abbot of the Holy Resurrection Monastery, which he established and uh, has been a, a, a good and close friend of my family for many years. My brother spent um, probably too long but in his monastery, um, discerning his vocation in life, and, and Abbot Nicholas generously opened the doors in the monastery and let him live there in that time of discernment. So uh, please join me in welcoming Abbot Nicholas Zechariades. Thank you very much, uh, Deacon Sabatino for that warm welcome. Yes, I, I, I know the Canazzo family for many years. Uh, Sebastian, his brother Deacon Sebastian now, lived with us actually for six months and uh, when he was just out of vet school. And at that stage, Deacon Sabatino was running a nursery, if I remember, plant nursery, right? So... Uh, but they seem to have, uh, as time goes on, they're both deacons, they're both working for the church, for the Greek Catholic Church, so uh, their lives have come closer together. I'm going to do something tonight that Pope Francis does. You know, Pope Francis often starts reading his talks and he says, this is boring, puts it all away and talks from the heart. The topic for tonight was kind of intimidating to me and I had no idea what the uh, audience would be like. And so I prepared something that would be probably more appropriate for an academic lecture. So I'm going to read from parts of it, and I'm going to read the Paschal Homily of St. John Chrysostom because it's relatively short, the shortest of his homilies. And, uh, and I will say a few things from here, but I will also speak more generally, and I also want to leave a lot more time for questions and discussion because I think where people are at is always a better place for me to address, to speak to. I'm also going to further introduce myself a little bit, mainly because of uh, the monastery, the importance of monastic life. Many Catholics, most of you are well-seasoned Catholics, shall we say, but even well-seasoned Catholics sometimes... Uh, know very little about monastic life. And that is a, a great pity. And the, 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 pre, the uh, present Pope and the previous Pope, of course, just to show you how important monastic life is, took, of course, the names of monks. St. Francis of Assisi, in Eastern terms, certainly a monk. Uh, and, of course, uh, Pope Benedict, St. Benedict, the founder in many ways of Western monasticism as we have it now. And so monastic life is very, very formative because it takes the faith from being just something cerebral, academic, 
to making it a lived experience, an experience of prayer, an experience of uh, living the angelic life, the life of heaven, the life that we are all called to. So that's very, very important. And just as Roman Catholicism would be incomprehensible without Benedictine monasticism and its whole history, and from that the other orders that develop, equally Eastern Catholicism, Eastern Christianity, both Orthodox and Catholic, are completely incomprehensible without their particular form of monastic life. And this, unfortunately, for various reasons, has been lacking, certainly in the USA and in many other parts of the world, particularly amongst the Eastern Catholic churches. And so what we have done, myself and the, uh, uh, the members of my community, which are 10 at the moment, is to attempt to revive an Eastern form, Eastern Christian form of monastic life because without it, Christianity is not fully understood. Now, we didn't think it up ourselves. Pope John Paul II, the Saint Pope John Paul II, Saint John Paul II the Great, wrote a wonderful apostolic letter in 1995 on the Eastern Churches and particularly on monastic life of the Eastern Churches. And he said something very profound, very profound. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an, very much an Eastern perspective on monastic life that the West has forgotten, but I think it's going to be very important for the new evangelization in the whole Catholic Church. I really do. And what he said was, monastic life in the Eastern Churches is not a different category of life. It's the Christian life, the life of the gospel lived more rigorously. So monks and nuns are women and men primarily of prayer, which is what we're all called to be, all of us. It's the, if you like, the reference point, and this is what Pope John Paul II said. He said monastic life is the reference point for all the baptized. Monastic life, unlike ordination, is not a sacrament. Not because it's less important, but it's essentially the sacrament of baptism. That's what it is. It's an extension of the sacrament of baptism. The baptism lived more rigorously. And therefore, everyone that has been baptized into Christ is to some degree a monastic. Categories in the West have become a little bit jumbled and religious life has become clericalized, number one, for various reasons, understandable reasons, and number two, become rather professionalized, active. And so we tend to think of religious brothers or religious sisters as doing something as different than us. They're not married, they live in community, they run church, they run hospitals or they run schools or they work in parishes. But all those things are secondary to the religious vocation. 
the primary the primary element of the religious vocation is to pray. And everything monks or nuns do, from not getting married, not having children, not having paid employment, is all so that they have more time to pray. That's what it's about. It's about prayer. We might have a layman who's married with children and spends more time in prayer than a monk in a monastery. He's more a monk than the other one. It's as simple as that. Because monastic life is about prayer. Baptismal life is about prayer. And this is really, really important. Monastic life is the Christian life, and it's a life that we often don't hear this word too often anymore, a life of mystical prayer. We tend to think of mysticism as, you know, extraordinary experiences, floating or visions or miracles. But essentially, the Christian mystery is about encountering Christ. And we do that mystically. He's not physically present to us in the same way that we are present to ourselves. He's not emotionally present to us in the way that we're emotionally present to ourselves. He's not even intellectually present in the way we are to ourselves because he is the son of God. And so we encounter him in a special way that's similar and yet different than the way we encounter each other. This is what we mean by Christian mystery. Christian mysticism. And unfortunately, in Western Christianity, this aspect of the faith has gradually, probably from about the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, and particularly in our day, has been somewhat marginalized with disastrous, catastrophic results. If the new evangelization in any way is going to succeed, and we're going to see what St. John Chrysostom can give us clues about how the new evangelization might succeed, it's going to have to go back to basics, back to the fundamentals. And there's nothing more fundamental in the church than that mystical encounter with God that happens to us in the deepest part of who we are, our souls. You don't hear that word very much. Grace acting on our souls in a way that is deeper than the intellect, deeper than the emotions, deeper than physical reality. That's why it's mystical and yet more important. That's what grace is about. Now, St. John Chrysostom, of course, was an extraordinary man who lived in the later part of the 4th century. He began his career, he was a, uh, a nobleman. He began his career uh, as an academic, a rhetorician, and also uh, a, 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 states, a statesman. But then he became a monk. He renounced everything to live that life of prayer, a deep Christian commitment, very basic to the Christian life. There was only one vocation that was more basic than the monastic vocation in Illa Christianity, and that was, of course, martyrdom, red martyrdom. They were the real fervent Christians. They gave up their whole lives in blood. When the age of martyrdom ceased, at least in the Roman Empire, as we know it hasn't ceased till our present day, but with its cease, with Christianity becoming a, the state religion in the Roman Empire, 
then monasticism began to be seen as, the, as a white martyrdom of dying to self every day. And it was at this time that the church began to emphasize to choose its leaders, the bishops, of course, mainly of the church, from its most fervent Christians. And so uh, more and more of the bishops were chosen, not only men who, well, there weren't too many men now that were being martyred, uh, so they had to look for other ways to discern who were the fervent Christians that could have that responsibility to be leaders in the church. And so uh, with red martyrdom having passed, white martyrdom became the ideal. And so the bishops in the church were chosen progressively more and more from the monks. Now, there's some very important thing to say, and then I'll go to the homily, because I don't want to... uh, I should keep a check on the time, so I don't... uh, wander off too much from tonight's topic. The important thing, because it has um, implications for our day, is that monastic life is the symbol, the uh, prototype, if you will, of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood that we receive through our Christian baptism. We hear that a lot. This is, of course, an argument where uh, some more more radical elements in the Catholic Church uh, misunderstand. And so there's this kind of pressure about women being ordained as priests and so on. But you see, they get this wrong. The priesthood of all believers that we get in baptism is epitomized in monastic life, not in the ministerial priest at the altar. That's a different thing. It's monastic life that is the living fervently, the priesthood of all believers. And you guessed it, monastic life is for men and women equally. In fact, in the Eastern churches, monks and nuns, the monastic life is almost the same. They even wear virtually the same habit, even with a beard. Well, they don't have beards, but (laughs) nuns have what's called an apostolic, a black veil, but they... They wear it like that, as if they had a beard. So there's no distinction between men and women. We need for that to be, to come into the church. The most important people in the church are not the Pope and the bishops and the priests. The most important people in the church are the saints, the martyrs, and the white martyrs, faithful monastics. They're the most important people in the church. And I suspect sometimes some of these more radical sisters that want to be ordained priests to serve at the altar don't fully appreciate that. They think the serving at the altar is more important, but it ain't. We're all baptized. That's the important sacrament. The priest at the altar is only to further facilitate that baptism. If there weren't the baptized, the priest has to be baptized Christian himself first, even the bishop. And in the Eastern churches, it's understood more because you see that a lot where even bishops go and find holy monastics, men or women, to seek counsel from them to be remembered in their prayers. What a wonderful example to us. Well, St. John Chrysostom was one of these special men, these special monks. And eventually he became the patriarch of Constantinople, first in Antioch, one of the great centers of the Roman Empire, 
present-day Turkey, then part of greater Syria, and then with the emperor's insistence, he became archbishop of the eastern imperial capital of Constantinople. A fiery character in many ways, had a wonderful relationship with uh, the deaconess Olympia. Olympia was a woman who, who he knew all his life. She was a great saint too. Seems to have suffered from some sort of depression. She was a very powerful, wealthy woman. She was more powerful, she was wealthier than the emperor. So it goes to show what sort of clout she had. And she became uh, at St. John Chrysostom's um, encouragement a deaconess or a nun. And she was the head of a whole uh, monastery, a convent of deaconesses. And she was his great supporter. She basically bankrolled his whole uh, term of office as Patriarch of Constantinople. I'm going to read now his Paschal homily. It's so profound and it's short. I'm probably not going to read exactly the same translation as you have. So you can read this one at leisure. I want you to close your eyes to listen to me reading it. And in many ways it's radical. And I want to take some of that up on what St. John Chrysostom has to say in his homily to us of what tact we might take 1,500 years later in this new evangelization which we're about to undertake so necessarily so. This is what he's... And interesting, in the Byzantine churches, both Catholic and Orthodox, on Easter night, the priest actually isn't allowed to preach his own homily. The tradition is he needs to read the greatest homily of the resurrection that has ever been written. He needs to read the homily of St. John Chrysostom. Just listen to it carefully and just take note how radical it is. He says... If any man be devout and love God, let him enjoy this fair and radiant triumphant feast. Remember, this is a big feast. In the Byzantine church, we celebrate Easter seriously. (laughs) If any man be a wise servant, let him rejoicing enter into the joy of his Lord. If any have labored long in fasting, let him now receive his recompense. If many have wrought from the first hour, let him today receive his just reward. If any have come at the third hour, let him with thankfulness keep the feast. If any arrived At the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, because he shall in no wise be deprived thereof. If any have delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near, fearing nothing. If any have tarried even until the eleventh hour, let him also be not alarmed at his tardiness. For the Lord who is jealous of his honor will accept the last even as the first. He gives rest unto him who comes at the eleventh hour even as unto him who has wrought from the first hour. It's not... As you can see, I'll just break and I'll go to another paragraph in a moment. 
what this is saying is something pretty radical. It's saying that God's mercy and God's love completely overwhelms justice. It's not just that someone who's worked for three hours and someone that's worked for 12 hours should be paid the same wage. We wouldn't put up with it. But it's not talking about earthly reality. It's talking about the love of God. His merciful, bounteous love. And this is really, really important. I think this is exactly what Pope Francis is emphasizing in this year of mercy. And it comes again and again and again in his talks. It's not saying that good and evil don't matter. It's not saying that morality doesn't matter, that there isn't a right and a wrong. It's not saying that justice isn't important. But it is saying that in the long run, what matters most is our salvation in God's eyes. And he is all merciful. Does that let us off the hook? No. But, it, but we also must never presume to judge the mercy of God even by theology. God is always beyond that. Thanks be to God. That mystery, remember how important that is. Does that mean we forget the whole theological tradition, absolutely not. But we still have to let God be God. He goes on, as he shows mercy upon the last and cares for the first. He's talking about the workmen, some who came early and some who came late. To the one he gives and upon the other he bestows gifts. And he both accepts the deeds and welcomes the intention. And honors the acts and praises the offering. Wherefore, enter you all into the joy of your Lord. And receive your reward, both the first and likewise the second. You rich and poor together. Hold high festival. You sober and you heedless. Honor the day. Rejoice today, both you who have fasted and those who have disregarded the fast. The table is fully laden. Feast ye all sumptuously. The calf is fatted. Let no one go away hungry. In the Byzantine church, in all the Eastern churches, we take fasting pretty seriously. As I like to remind Roman Catholics, you used to before Vatican II as well. (laughs) You're still supposed to take it seriously, just the rules have been taken away. But you haven't been given the proper catechesis to be able to apply that. Well, why should we fast? In the, and in the monastery, we fast fairly strictly. I, why? It, it doesn't matter. Oh, yes, it matters a lot. It matters because of our love for God. But that doesn't change his love. His love is independent of that. But our love is important too. And so if we really love God... we will do the right thing. We will worship in spirit and truth. We will fast. 
we will live a good Christian life. We will receive his mysteries, his sacraments. He will continue to love us, whether we do that or we don't. But reality is about this relationship between us and God and his church. And relationships are always two-way. You can't define relationship. No matter, all of us know what it means, what it, I think most of us know what it means to love someone and not to be loved in return. Now we're human. It sometimes, at our worst, can influence our love. But not always. Some people have the courage and the holiness to continue loving someone unconditionally. That's how God loves us. Of course, it would be better, wouldn't it, if that person loved us in return? Wouldn't that be better? So it, it, it would be better if we showed our love for God in return. But God's love does not depend on that. Thanks be to God. St. John goes on in his homily... Enjoy ye all the feast of faith, as we call Easter, Pascha, the feast of feasts. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his sins, for pardon has shown forth from the grave. In our Byzantine church, strictly speaking, confessions aren't supposed to be heard during Easter and Bright Week, the week after. Because that week is so special. Everything else changes. Sin is almost invisible. So let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Saviour's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has, has annihilated death. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when he tasted of his flesh. And the way we read it, all the monks yell out, embittered. And then the priest says, and Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. Embittered. It was, embit uh, it was embittered for it was abolished, talking about death. It was embittered for death was mocked. It was embittered, for death was slain. Embittered. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body, death took a body, and met God face to face. It took earth, and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. And this is the profound last paragraph. O oh death, where is your sting? O oh hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. And the angels rejoice for Christ is risen. Christ is risen and life reigns eternally. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ being risen from the dead 
is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What a profound summation of the essence of our faith. Is this the primary focus of your faith? Is that what you understand by faith? So many ex-Catholics, did they understand this and is this what they have denounced? I suspect not. Fulton Sheen, didn't he, said, I have yet to meet a Catholic who's become an ex-Catholic. I've met, he said, a lot of Catholics who thought they were Catholics who are ex-Catholics. What a, who, how could this, this summary of the faith, so profound, how could it be turned away from? How could it be interpreted in the way that Christianity is interpreted? Probably because it's a false Christian, as oppressive, unjust, discriminatory, intolerant. We hear that all the time. Maybe we haven't preached real Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean all the other things you forget about, of course. Remember, we have to love God. But his love is not conditional. Christ has risen. Very good. I am going to uh, depart a little bit now and just talk a little bit about our monastery and then we're going to have time for questions. For those of you that want to know more about the monastery, and I might even be tempted, this (laughs) formal talk that I prepared tonight, I tell you what, I'll put it up on our webpage. So if you really, really want to read it with a a cup of coffee or a glass of scotch, you can do that. (laughs) You better not read it. It's not bedtime reading. You'll fall asleep. Now, our webpage is www.hrmonline.org. www.hrm, initials for Holy Resurrection Monastery, hrmonline.org. Our webpage really gives our story says a lot about the monastery, and this will be up. We've recently started an appeal. God has blessed us in so many ways. We've been going for about 20 years. We started with nothing. We didn't have any money, none at all. We had no approbation from the church, none at all. We are a monastery, a canonical monastery. We have a wonderful facility in Wisconsin, a 150-year-old convent that is in badly need of repair, but a beautiful, beautiful historic uh, building in a beautiful historic village called, not Chrysostom, but Nazians, St. Nazians, after St. Gregory Nazianzus, another patriarch of Constantinople. Who would have thought that there was an American town named after one of the great church, Greek church fathers? We found it, and that's where our monastery is. How appropriate. Isn't that divine providence? St. Nazians in Wisconsin, a little village that began as a Catholic utopia community in 1854 by German Catholics who came out to begin a Catholic utopia community. We are the third religious presence at St. Nazian's. First, there was the Oswald community with Father Oswald who came out from Germany. 
and they died out by about the 1890s. And then the Salvatorian fathers and sisters came and took over. And now they've virtually gone, and Holy Resurrection Monastery has taken over. But, as you will see from our appeal, we need your help to continue our work in the new evangelization, to pay off our mortgage. We own a mortgage on the property and to restore it. 150 years is, particularly in cold Wisconsin, a lot of wear and tear. And the building is in pretty good shape. They were, they were, they were tough Germans. They built things to last, I tell you. But still, uh, there's a lot of repairs that need to be done. But most of all, if you can help us, help us with your prayers. Help us by passing the word around about what we're trying to do, trying to uh, give an Eastern Christian perspective to the new evangelization. Because we Eastern Christians are also Catholic. We're also part of the church. And if the church is going to renew herself in the new evangelization, it has to be the whole church. It has to be a part of the New evangelization, as you well know, part of the reason we're so in the bad straits we're in is that nobody knows what it means to be a Catholic anymore. Catholic identity is... But part of that too is also knowing that Eastern Christianity is part of Catholicism. That's just as important as knowing the Catechism, to know our history, to know our culture to know where we came from, to know all this. It's not just about Rome. That's why we got in the mess we got in at the, in the beginning. I'll ask you a question. That will surprise you. You know, in the year 800, on Christmas Day, the year 800, the Pope in Rome crowned Charlemagne, Holy Western Roman Emperor, Charles the Great, the great Frankish king. And many Western historians claim that was the beginning of Christendom. Well, in the year 800, there were two Christian capitals in the world that had more Christian adherents than any other, the two biggest Christian cities in the world in the year 800. What were they? Who can venture a guess? All right, Constantinople, or New Rome was one of them, but what was the other? It was a place called Stesiphon, which is present-day Baghdad. Just think of that. Baghdad in the 800s was a bigger Christian center than Rome. Now, if you didn't know that, you don't know your faith. You don't know what it means to be a Catholic. Up to the 13th century, up to the 13th century, only a third of Christians were European. A third were Africans and a third were Asians. And they had been since apostolic times. Another thing, Christianity, this myth that Christianity is a white man's religion, a colonial power, rubbish. Absolute rubbish. The other thing, that Christianity is so dependent on being a state religion, For most of its history, most Christians lived in the Far East than in the Roman Empire. For most of its history, most Christians lived in non-Christian states. These Far Eastern Christians that we talk about that lived around Baghdad as their center, we think of them as you know, a small minority. They're a small minority now but they were the majority for about a thousand years. See, this is why it's so important what's happening in the Middle East. That's our roots. That's our Christian culture. It's part of who we are. So that's important. So I would encourage you, there's a lot of that kind of information on our webpage. Uh, 
look it up. All right, let's have some time for some questions. Deacon. Oh, wonderful. Abbot, you uh, had mentioned uh, to worship uh, in spirit and truth. Um, I was asked that question once, and I think I know what it means, but I want to hear what you say because it's not what most people think. The sp- okay. I don't have a blackboard here, but I, in order to understand our faith, we need to understand, we need to have a, a sound anthropology of what it means to be human. And for the sake of understanding that, we might divide what it means to be human on four levels. They're, not, they're only superficial, but just to help us understand. What, what's the first level that defines who we are? What, what, what defines most obviously who we are? Physical, right? What we look like, whether you're thin and good-looking like me or, you know, otherwise. So our bodies, our bodies define who we are. And so our faith needs to be physical. That's why we have the sacraments, the mysteries, right? Particularly the Eucharist. That's why God became man in the incarnation. What's a little bit deeper of what defines what we are? Uh, well, let's, I would say our psychology, our emotions. And our emotions, the things you said weren't wrong, they're just a few steps ahead. So our bodies, our psychology, our emotional life, and our worship needs to be on that level too. You know, kids say, I don't want to go to Mass, it's boring, I don't feel anything. Now, they should feel something. Now, it's not just about feelings. But feelings are important. But we have to go deeper. Then what else defines who we are? Someone said the intellect, our values, our theology, what we believe, our worldview. Okay, that's uh, the intellectual aspect of our faith. And we all know that we can't be good Catholics unless we know our faith, unless we know the magisterial teaching of the church, unless we know... Uh, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, unless we know all these things. Truth, right? But the most important element of who we are is our souls, that mystical level that is the least accessible and yet the most important. That's where God speaks to us. In Byzantine terminology, we talk about God acting through uncreated grace, through his own nature, through his own energies. He touches our souls. And that knowledge is deeper than intellectual knowledge. People say, well, how can it be deep? How can you have knowledge that's not intellectual? And yet we all know that we have that. We all know that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Even an atheist can intellectually on that level say, I am an atheist, I don't believe in God. But when you look more deeply on, in, at the level of his soul, even atheists live their lives as if they believe. They fall in love, they marry, they have children, they have hopes, they have fears. They don't live their lives as a just group of random molecules. And so I would say that's those four levels. The truth is the intellectual, the, the mystical, the faith is that deepest level. And this is something else in the new evangelization. I think we have to get across to young people. Most Christians have not heard of it, particularly the Christian tradition, because in Protestant Christianity, of course, There's no mysticism. It's all just on, well, no mystical theology. There's mysticism. Of course there is. But they only talk about, you know, the scripture, what you know, the intellectual, the cerebral. We have to, in the new evangelization, re-tap 
that deepest level of where it really all takes place. And we haven't been talking about that and most people don't know about it. And then we wonder why the church is shrinking. That's why the church is shrinking. We, <laughs> what's most basic and most important, we're not connecting with. And we're not helping people to connect with. Any other questions? Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, talk a little bit about the literary devices that St. John Chrysostom employs in his Paschal Sermon. In particular, I noticed uh, the frequent use of parallelism. Mm-hmm. Again, the only thing I'd say, you know, I'm not a literary expert, and so this is really beyond my scope. But one of the things I would say is that in all worship, including because we're talking about a mystery, because we're talking about something so profound that can't be fully intellectually grasped, the tools that are always used in art, architecture, literature, are symbolic. In literature, we use poetry. Why do we use poetry? Why do we use iconography that are kind of otherworldly, that are kind of mystical? It's not just a technique, a ploy. It's not even better catechesis. It's because that's all we've got to use to, to, to portray a reality that is non-conceptual. So St. John Chrysostom, like all the O's of his time, in his sermons, used uh, allegory, used uh, uh, poetry, used symbolism, because, not just because he wasn't a scientific man in the way that we are, he didn't use science language, it's not just that. It's because he was trying to portray a mystery that can't be portrayed in an intellect, uh, exclusively in an intellectual way. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh. Father, you mentioned that there are 10 in your community. Uh, what is the makeup? Are you all priests? And, what, and, and how does one join your community? If you're married, you can't come. <laughs> uh, are they all priests? It's a good, that's a good... No, because we are only a few are priests for the needs of the community because the vocation of the monk is to be a model of the priesthood of all believers. That's what happened in the West where this became confused for accidental reasons to do with the fall of the Western Roman Empire and uh, ignorance and the monks didn't go and fight, so they weren't knights and they weren't peasants. They had the luxury to study, and so more, more and more of them began to be ordained because they had learning. But the problem is monastic life became more clerical, and that began to confuse the issue. So in our community, we are very strong on that. A young man, if a young man comes to my community and says, right, I want to become a priest, I said, well, why are you coming here? Go and see a bishop, and he can fulfill his, your demands and get ordained. I, I don't accept them. They have to want to become monks. Now, there have to be some priests and deacons so that we can do the, the, the services, but that's all. Okay? It seemed like Vatican II was opening up the idea in its documents uh, of priesthood of the believers. And this got squelched, uh, you know, because our people didn't understand. And so, okay, so this is a very Protestant thing, the priesthood of believers, because Luther didn't like priesthood. And, and uh, so it... Um, how how will we come now to a, a, you know to greater understanding of priesthood of the believers? It seems like your gift, your charism. Um, yes, it's a it's a it's a misconception of Vatican II. Vatican see the Council of Trent, and to some degree Vatican I, the whole focus was to fight against Protestantism. 
By the time of Vatican II, Protestantism was on its way out. That wasn't the issue. So what the Church Fathers wanted to do is, I believe, the, 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 the Council Fathers of Vatican II, they wanted to return to a more patristic, the, the, level, the time of St. John Chrysostom in liturgy, in theology, in monastic life. Priestful of all belief, that's what they meant, what St. John Chrysostom would have meant. But unfortunately, people didn't have that background. They all, always thought of, you know, the fights at Trent and Vatican I, Luther. They w- didn't have Luther in mind, but in people's minds, that's what came to mind, the fights at Council of Trent. And that was a misinterpretation. Either way, that was a misinterpretation of Vatican II. Vatican II makes it very clear. They want to go back to the patristic sources. And that's why we're trying to revive this earlier form of identity of the church that is, and it's what Vatican II wanted, but it still hasn't been understood to the day. The liturgy, for example. The liturgy wasn't supposed to become non-Tridentine and therefore Protestant. It was supposed to become patristic. But people didn't interpret it that way because, well, probably because they didn't know anything about Eastern Christianity. If they knew something about Eastern Christianity, they would have because Eastern Christianity has kept that patristic model much more strongly. Melanie. Oh, you remember my name. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. I'm wondering... Could you speak about the, you, you spoke of the wideness and depth of God's mercy and love as expressed in uh, St. John Chrysostom's homily and also of, of obviously the need to keep God's laws as well. And especially with the new evangelization and all the difficulties that we're dealing with in the United States today, I'd just be interested in your perspective of how we're able to express his phenomenal love for us while not sacrifice the need for understanding our... We need to have more monasteries. (laughs) The lived experience, not just hearing about it, but seeing it in action. Seeing men and women that aren't particularly holy. My monks aren't particularly more holy than any of you, but they're young men, most, most of them, ordinary American young men of 2015, some of them are very bright, and they spend hours and hours in liturgical prayer. They have beards and wear habits, and they're normal men. I don't accept any wackos. (laughs) I want them to be normal American men with all the struggles of, and yet have the desire to be good monks, real monks, men of prayer. That's the secret. And, and people get surprised that they see that as, see us in church with beards and something out of the 5th century and then they come in the trapezone, the guy's joking, they're very normal men. And that impresses particularly young people because they see that there isn't the disconnect. They see it's, We dress like this all the time, even out in the street. And yet... I don't think we're wackos. I wouldn't have wackos. That would be a... We have to show the culture what real Christian culture is about and how integrated it is. It's not the spiritual out there and the physical down here. It's integrated. That's the witness we have. So uh, I think that's... And the East is in a kind of a privileged position because we don't have... We don't have the, the, the polarization, unfortunately, that's happened in the West because of all sorts of reasons, the Enlightenment, uh, progressive, conservative, in, uh, all that stuff. Yes, the liturgical wars, all that stuff. Thanks be to God, due no virtue of our own, but just historical reasons, we've got other problems, but we don't have those problems. <laughs> we have problems of living under communism in Islam. That's almost destroyed us. But we don't have the same problems that you've had in the same way. So in a way that makes us privileged in the new evangelization to, to, to say something that is very traditional yet very new and people haven't heard before. Thank you very much, Abbot Nicholas.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.